This is Anne-Marie Lewis, and you are listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us, brought to you by American Rivers. It's no secret, the Intermountain West is a generally arid landscape, one that is in the midst of an 18-year dry period, with sweeping consequences across the western United States and across the country. Lake Powell is sitting at 53% right now, Lake Mead's at 40%, and predicted inflow into Lake Powell is about 43%. So we're expecting less than half of normal runoff, and we're already in a drought in the basin. So this is coming on top of an 18-year drought, which is going to really impact all of the sectors that depend on the Colorado River. So we are all impacted, and we are all in this together. So to get through it, we're going to have to be creative, but we're also going to have to recognize that everyone plays a role in making sure that we can get through it. This is Taylor Hawes, the Nature Conservancy's Colorado River Program Director, who focuses on a broad range of issues in the Colorado River Basin. In our last podcast, Securing Arizona's Water Supply, we discussed how the Lower Basin is seeking to encourage greater water conservation through a proposed drought contingency plan. Today, we will be exploring what the Upper Basin is proposing through its own drought contingency plan. The Lower Basin is in a more acute situation than the Upper Basin, currently overusing the amount of water allocated to the Lower Basin by the Colorado River Compact. So it's true that the upper basin has had less pressure to conserve because it has not always relied on its full allocation. But that doesn't mean the upper basin has any easier. They each have different obstacles to overcome. It's kind of apples to oranges between the upper and lower basin. Because of the way they sit geographically, there's a lot of differences. So, for example, in the lower basin, there's only about 26 major diversions off of the Colorado River below Lake Mead. In the upper basin, there's hundreds of thousands of water diversions. So it's there's not those really big diverters that you can work with. You have to go farmer to farmer, but farmer. So it's just much more difficult, uh, and it's going to take a lot more time to kind of figure out a way to create a program that works in the upper basin. Another big issue is that the – so if you think of Lake Mead and Lake Palace bank accounts for the upper and lower basin, having Lake Mead sit above – the water users in the lower basin makes things it makes it way easier to manage because they if they don't need the water or if a farmer conserves in the lower basin they just don't release the water from Lake Mead. In the upper basin, the bank account sits at the bottom of the system. And so once they let that water go by, they can't get it back. And so it it's it creates a lot of uncertainty and insecurity with the upper basin because they don't want to let water go downstream that they otherwise could use. So that's a big difference. The other thing is that the lower basin has a a water master in the Secretary of Interior. So there's one person who can kind of wrangle all of the water users and implement things. In the upper basin, it's four distinct states, and they all have different water laws, and they're all operating kind of independently. And so that's another big challenge. And then there's also different crop types between the lower basin and the upper basin. In the upper basin, it's a lot of ranches and cattle operations and hay production. When you're raising cattle, it has different kinds of considerations than if you're growing row crops. And so it makes it much more difficult to manage that from a demand management perspective. And then the last thing I'd point out is that there, and this is a big one, in the lower basin, it's quite clear that the lower basin is using all of its Colorado River compact water. In the upper basin, they are, there's still a belief that there's additional water to be developed. 
even though we're heading into our 18th year of drought and the reservoirs are sitting approximately at half full and we're expecting a really bad year this year. But there's still kind of a long-held, almost religious belief that there's still water to be developed and that's probably not the case in a sustainable way. The Upper Basin's DCP is multi-layered, encompassing cloud seeding, reservoir reoperation, and perhaps most importantly, demand management practices. And so some of the things we're doing in the Upper Basin or the Upper Basin Drought Contingency Plan includes things like cloud seeding in some of our Upper Basin states, but also removing tamarisk and other plants that use a lot of water, non-native plants. They're also looking at reservoir operations. So if we go to a critical level at Lake Powell, we can release water from some of the other Upper Basin reservoirs, such as Flaming Gorge, Aspinall Unit, or Navajo. And so the Bureau is working with all the Upper Basin states and partners to understand how that might work, at what point would we do that, but it it really would only buy us a year or so. So it's it's a pretty extreme measure, but at least it might avert a crisis. If we really go down quickly in the system, it's a good option to kind of buy us another year. And then the third thing is demand management, and that includes developing a program that can reduce our water use in the basin overall, in the upper basin. So it could be working with cities, but also with farmers, with tribes. And so figuring out that way to reduce the overall demand on the system in those really critical years. The concept of demand management involves some of the traditional water users in the basin deciding that there might be certain times of year or certain years when they can use less water or use water in a different way. And then we can translate that into system-wide benefits by trying to shepherd water down into places like Lake Powell and Lake Mead to increase system reliability. This is Scott Yates, the director of Trout Unlimited's Western Water and Habitat Program. Scott's average day consists of reaching out to field staff throughout the Colorado River Basin about habitat conservation, river flow levels, and creative partnerships to engage local ranchers and farmers in water conservation programs, like the System Conservation Pilot Program. The System Conservation Pilot Program is a specific program that distributes excess ranch and farm water to where it is needed in reservoirs, thus utilizing a demand management approach. The System Conservation Pilot Program, the SCPP, is really a pilot approach to implementing that concept. System conservation is one program, and it's a, pro- it's a pilot program that was started a few years ago by four major cities in the basin, uh, LA, Southern Nevada Water Authority, which is Las Vegas, Central Arizona Project, and Denver Water. And then it was also, the Bureau was part of that process. And they developed a program to experiment and see if there was a market to pay farmers and cities and other water users to reduce their water use, and then just let that water accumulate to the system. So it didn't have anybody's name on it. It wasn't allocated to any particular user. It was just to try to increase water security in the whole system. So to put in other words, the system conservation pilot program has been an attempt to get people to voluntarily reduce their water so that it can be delivered to the system as a whole to help everyone involved. The program was designed to provide system water, water that doesn't belong to anyone in particular, but is used to maintain water levels in Lake Powell and Lake Mead to insulate the basin from the crises that could occur if water in those reservoirs, tied to power production, municipal water use, and agricultural use, reaches critical levels. This approach puts the water where the demand is greatest. For example, 
If a farmer doesn't need to use their full water right to grow their alfalfa one year, they can sell the surplus amount to another farm, municipality, or conservation program, like the pilot program. The program started in 2014 and has been running for four years with the program's authorizing legislation set to expire this year. A broad coalition of groups collaborated to make the program possible, and it has demonstrated an impressive interest among ranchers and farmers. What we've seen is growth and participation, especially from the agricultural community, over the first four to five years of the program. There's a lot of different folks that are making this work. The states in the Upper Basin are all involved through their role in the Upper Colorado River Commission. And the Upper Colorado River Commission is a body of the four Upper Basin states, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico. And they each have a representative on that commission. And that commission is managing the program in the Upper Basin. So they have a role in administering the program, monitoring, signing contracts with participants. So they have a really active role in the program. The states are all involved through their attorney general's offices, making sure that all of this is being done according to state water law, uh, so they have a role. And in particular, NGOs have had a very large role in bringing funding, legal resources, and technical and modeling resources, along with additional participants for the program. And then the NGOs, I think, have played a really unique role in this process, and quite a few different roles. I would say first and foremost, uh, the NGO groups have been the folks that have found some of the participants. So we did a lot of work, uh, you know, the Nature Conservancy, Trout Unlimited, American Rivers, uh, have all been out talking to farmers about participating and, and enlisting their support in, in a program. And so when the program was launched, a lot of the projects were projects that we were involved in because we had been out talking to the farmers and agricultural producers. So I think that was our primary role was bringing projects to, to the program. Uh, before the program was launched, there was a concern that there wouldn't be much interest. And so I think we were able to prove that there is a lot of interest in this market and, and that people are interested in playing a positive role in solving some of these really difficult challenges. Trout Unlimited is an NGO that has done just as such. We work with ranches and farms in Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming as part of the System Conservation Pilot Program. And one of our goals is, of course, to use all the kind of rural and, and locally based staff we have um, to reach out to farmers and ranchers. And if they enroll their lands, let's say those lands are on an important tributary that has a lot of trout or a really good trout fishery in the Colorado River Basin, if we're going to help or try to shepherd that water once they've enrolled fields and put water into the program, if that water is going to be shepherded down to a place like Lake Powell, it will be providing flow benefits through that entire reach. And so a lot of the ranchers and farmers that have expressed interest in this program are in some of the headwater areas that have you know, some of the, the world's best trout fisheries. The main goal of Trout Unlimited is to protect, restore, and sustain cold water fisheries and the habitat upon which they depend. But why is protecting and understanding fisheries so important? Most of the places where you find trout, salmon, or steelhead are some of the most beautiful places on the planet. And uh, they're also some of the most ecologically rich. If those populations, trout populations, are dwindling, that shows that water quality and water quantity are not in good shape. And so trout are really important because they kind of show us what's wrong with some of our waterways and what can be fixed. And I think by focusing on fisheries, you can focus on things that are also important to towns and cities and sustainable life here in the West. By now, you should understand the many benefits of the System Conservation Pilot Program. 
but there are some very real challenges in it, and it is important to understand these too. There are a lot of challenges. None are insurmountable, but I think uh, all the, the water users, the NGOs, the water managers, we're all going to have to work together over the next few years to make sure that, that we can overcome some of them. But I think a couple of the most important ones are, you know, how can we potentially get a landowner enrolled in one state and then shepherd that water all the way down to Lake Powell? So some of the legal and policy implications of shepherding water are challenging. I think making sure that ranchers and farmers are comfortable with demand management as a long-term tool is also a challenge. I think we have a lot of individual producers and a lot of neighbors on specific tributaries that are working together, but we have to make sure that they're able to advocate for this as an actual ranch operation or farm operation tool. It's flexible enough for them that doesn't put their water rights at risk, and that also makes sense from an economic standpoint for the agricultural community. The skepticism felt by some ranchers and farmers towards the pilot program originates from a fear of losing or compromising their water right, and in turn compromising their crops and their livelihoods. This isn't a strange fear to have when considering the less than attractive practice known as buy and dry. You know, traditionally buy and dry type of programs or specific instances deal when it could be a city, but it could be somebody else where they actually acquire a ranch or farm, stop ranching and farming, and basically dedicate that water to some other type of consumptive use. And therefore, you know, you, you lose ranch land, you lose farmland. And, and I think from Trout Unlimited's perspective, it's really important to, to avoid those type of scenarios because I think there are a litany of alternatives and ways to work with ranchers and farmers where the water rights stay attached to their land and they remain in control of their operations, but we're able to basically do things like demand management or the SCPP that give them flexible water management tools that they can take advantage of. They can help with fisheries, it can help them with system reliability, but it still allows those ranch and farms to, to, to stay on the ground maintain open space and all the things that, that Westerners think are important. And I think the way we're trying that is to make sure that ranchers and farmers are, you know, obviously directly involved in enrolling in the program. They're helping to advocate for its usefulness as a, as a long-term water management tool. Um, and then also the fact that the program has been designed to make sure that water rights stay attached to the land. And we're currently, we're trying to talk to water managers in the upper basin states, especially where we do most of our work, to make sure that, that, that forfeiture or any of the other things that could potentially happen or hypothesize to happen with, with water rights don't occur. And I think a lot of it ties into, you know, the long-term challenges that we have to overcome. But, uh, but I think overall the benefits of demand management and a program like the System Conservation Pilot Program are going to be extraordinary. And I think that you know, we can overcome the fears by just dealing with the specific facts and specific cases and making sure that whatever program is long-term has precautionary measures and specific measures to deal with those things. And some ways in which flexible agreements with ranchers and farmers could take form is on a year-to-year -year basis. Or, you know, if they decide not with all their fields, but with certain fields that they want to participate for a term of years, like three years or five years or ten years, it can be very flexible, and I think it can also tie into the type of types of crops that they're either rotating or that they that they produce. So I really do think a demand management program over time has a lot of flexibility to work for ranchers and farmers, and then also the municipal uh, providers and other folks that are looking at creative ways to reduce demand while at the same time not putting at risk our ranch and farmland in the West. 
The challenges presented in the pilot program can be overcome with strategies and negotiations, such that a demand management water market can become a long-term management tool for the Colorado Basin. The intention over time is, is to potentially create a water market that helps reduce demand in the Colorado River Basin. The way I see a market working in our water law system is to create flexibility. Our current water law system is very rigid. Uh, in Colorado, for example, if you want to change your water right or use your water in a different way or a different location, you have to go to water court. It's very expensive. It opens up your water right to opposition from other parties who might want to diminish your water right. So it, it's a, there's a disincentive to changing anything in the way you use your water right. And so a market like this, which is voluntary and temporary and compensated, allows water users to enroll their water in a program on a short-term basis, which lets them keep their water on the land and in, in farming. So I think the idea over time is that people would look at, 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 yes, wanting to participate in a market. They would get reimbursed for participating in that market, and then we would have a sufficient amount of water to deliver to those reservoirs, increase the system reliability, and then the awareness uh, that there may be different ways to to use water and do it in a way that, that a lot of different entities can benefit within the system. In those really dry critical years, it gives us a, a water supply, or it lets us move water around to those places that are in dire need. So it just gives us more flexibility and doesn't require a water right holder to go to water court, which is something they try to avoid at all costs. And if a water market system, like the System Conservation Pilot Program, is permanently established, it will likely involve a water bank, which is a reservoir where the conserved water is stored and accounted for. For example, Lake Powell could serve as a water bank, and it could be a place that where if, if we do demand management in our upper basin states, we need a place to accumulate that water and track it, and there needs to be governance and funding for that. And I think the biggest difference in understanding between a water bank and system conservation is that system, the system conservation project or program literally just paid farmers and cities to reduce their water use but had no way to protect that water. It didn't account for that water. It just They just hoped for the best, and they hoped that it would get down to Lake Powell. If you have a water bank, it provides more formality, and it will allow the states, each of the upper basin states, to contribute and track that water and make sure they get credit for that water. It provides a governance structure so that we have a little more oversight on how a program like this would run. I do think a water bank is a mechanism that can give more certainty to all of those involved. So it gives more certainty to those who are paying for the water and it gives more certainty to those who are contributing their water. But water programs that pay ranchers and farmers are expensive. So in order for conservation efforts to continue, municipal and government funding must continue the effort. And, in the long run, money is saved by averting crisis and ensuring the overall sustainability of the system. We have to make sure that the kind of the core group of municipal and federal government funders think it's worthwhile and think that it's going to provide uh, long-term system benefits. But I think all of those stakeholders, the, the people that help set up the SCPP and then and help fund it, they're all hoping that the program basically reduces the risk to water users in the Colorado River Basin. It also, you know, for municipalities, it reduces 
potentially reduces the amount of water that they have to spend on new, creating new water, which is very, very expensive in the Colorado Basin. And then for the federal government, there are a variety of things ranging from endangered species issues on the main stem of the Colorado and, and certain tributaries to some of the historic water users that they've delivered water to, to power production that they do with their, their big reservoirs, their big dams and reservoirs. So I think certainly the, the purpose of, of the funding entity is to allow more flexibility and reduce the risk to the overall system. Western water resources are in a tough spot, but the basins are at an exciting point in the last year of the pilot program. The program has engaged ranchers and farmers in water conservation and fueled cooperation between NGOs, municipalities, government, and consumers. We are in the 18th year of drought in the West, but good work is being done to help ensure a sustainable, reliable future in the Colorado River Basin, one that is just now coming to grips with a more arid future. Anytime you run into drought in the West, it's going to be very, very difficult. At the same time, you know, from Trout Unlimited's perspective, drought can also fuel innovation and get people thinking about what we need to do better over time to make sure that because of water scarcity issues, that we do a better job of conserving water and then making sure that resources that depend on it, that we've got enough for those things. You know, I think one of the big battle cries in the Colorado River Basin in recent years has been, we're all in this together. And I think that's, that's really a useful phrase. And it's gonna take everybody taking a hard look at how we've used water in the past, how we can change things and make it so that uh, we have the water available for a variety of uses and, and resources in the future. You almost can't work in water without being an optimist. I will say that, you know, human nature is such that we probably won't have all the answers when the crisis gets to that acute point. But my hope is through all of the work, like System Conservation Program and like the Water Bank Work Group, that we will have a lot of the answers so that when the crisis does hit, we have enough good information so we can create a program that will work for all sectors very quickly. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us. Please rate and comment.